Hey, we're in the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at just the last three verses of Mark um, in today's message. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. It says that Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. God, would you show us in uh, these words um, who you are? Father, would you open our eyes and help us to understand what it means to confess Christ? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So we've been in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark opens up, if you remember, this this book that, that he writes through the eyes of Peter, that he makes his case, he says that this is a book about Jesus, the Son of God. Very simply said, Jesus was the Son of God, declaring that this is who Jesus was. And he follows that up in verse 11 by reporting on Jesus' baptism when he hear the voice from heaven that said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. He follows that up with, with seeing Jesus uh, 40 days in the wilderness and giving in encounters with Satan. And, and then all through the first eight chapters of Mark, we see Mark making a case for who Jesus is as the Son of God. And he does that by, by reporting to us um, the, the way that Jesus healed blind people and people with leprosy, the way that he, he cast out demons and, and forgave sins and calmed storms. And, and, and through, through his powerful teaching, people saw something different in this Jesus that, that has burst onto the scene. And Mark is explaining who he is. And, and Jesus, uh, jumping onto this scene, he, is so profound and so different from what people have known, it causes people to ask things like, where did this man get such things? Well, what's the wisdom that has been given to him? Even his own disciples in Mark cha- chapter 4, after Jesus has calmed the storm, says, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So Mark has been very strategically through these first eight chapters up to verse 27, helping us to understand who Jesus is as the Son of God. But when we get here to, to the end of Mark chapter, when we get to Mark chapter 8, I think Jesus is, is, is making one final case for who Jesus is, and then you're going to see a shift in, in the way that Mark writes. And in Mark chapter 8, and in here in verse 27 through 30, is like the high point. It's the very center of the book, but it's, it's the high point of the book. 
But it begins in verse in, in the beginning of Mark chapter 8 by, by reporting on the feeding of the 4,000. Now, this is different than the feeding of the 5,000. Some people will tell you that they're the same, but they're not. And if you read it carefully, Jesus says, remember when I fed the 5,000? Now I'm feeding the 4,000. And what's interesting to me is, as, as the disciples, you know, they had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people. They had, been, they had watched it. They had, they had seen the 12 uh, bushels of, of bread that were left. And yet, when Jesus said, look, we need to feed these 4,000 people that we've, been, that we've been teaching over the last three days. We need to get them some bread. They doubt. They struggle with unbelief. They're like, well, how are we going to feed them? Look at all these people. We're in this remote place. Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? They had seen him do this before. But they're still struggling with, with doubt, with, with unbelief. And, and from there, we see Jesus um, being questioned by, by, the, by the Pharisees. They're saying, look, you need to do a miracle for us. Show us miracles to confirm that you are who you say you are. Unbelief. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Then as Jesus and his disciples push off from, from that place where he had fed the 4,000 people, and they're, they're in a boat going across to the other side, and, and lo and behold, they only brought one loaf of bread. What are they thinking? There's 13 guys, they bring one loaf of bread. And, and I wonder what this conversation went like as these guys were were sitting there with this one loaf of bread. You know, it's like, they're probably playing the, have any of you ever seen, heard your kids play the blame game? Well, James, where's the bread? Why didn't you bring it? Why did you forget it? Bartholomew, you had the baskets. I doubt whether Thomas even thought about it. Did nobody get that? Thanks, Keith. But all this time, they're, they're arguing about, about who was supposed to bring the bread. And then Jesus, as he hears this conversation, uses it as a teaching moment. He says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out for their false teaching and the things that they're telling you. And then they, they, after Jesus says it, they say, is it because we have no bread? And then Jesus twice in these verses says, Do you not see? Do you still not understand? You've watched me heal people. You've watched me feed masses of people twice with just a little bit of bread and a few fish. And yet you still don't understand. They still struggle with unbelief. And then in verses 22 to 26, Jesus, as they, as they come ashore on the other side, there's a blind man. So Jesus spits in his eyes. And, and he gets partial sight. He says, do you see? And he said, well, I sort of see. I see people, but they sort of look like trees. It's really fuzzy. And Jesus does it again. And, and then he says, I see. Now, the question is, was this, was this just really a tough case of blindness that, that Jesus had to give it two tries? 
Or could it be that Jesus was using this moment, this healing, as an opportunity to make a point? Of, of, of explaining to his disciples that, look, right now, you're seeing things a little fuzzy. But I'm going to make so you see things really clearly. So maybe Jesus is addressing their limited sight more than, I don't think this was a tough case because Jesus can do anything. I think he was doing it to make a point. But then we get to this, this, this high point in, in, in the whole book of Mark right in the middle and everything that, that, that Mark has written and reported up to this point brings us to these verses where Jesus and his disciples, it says, went on the, for, to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on their way, it says, who do people say that I am? Now, I wonder, did Jesus really want to know what other people thought? Was he really interested in what, what other people were thinking about who he was? Or was he more interested in what his disciples were thinking? Because remember, they had been with him for now two and a half years. They had been a part of, of every public teaching, of, of a lot of private discipleship that, that he was doing with them. They had seen him perform miracles, and they had heard all of this teaching. So then he says this. First he says, what do people think about me? Then he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? The most important question that anyone will ever answer in their lifetime, the most important question that they would ever answer is, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being Peter, speaks on everyone's behalf, and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. In other words, you are the anointed one. You're the one we've been waiting for, for all these centuries. We believe that you are Christ. You see, their doubts of, of who Jesus was have disappeared, and they're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that he is God in human flesh. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. This is the greatest moment in their lives. Because this one, this, this Messiah that, like I said, that, that, that Abraham and David and the prophets have been talk, had, had talked about for all these centuries and what they believed, here he was, the one that was going to deliver them from Roman oppression, the one that was going to make Israel great again, the Messiah that was going to, to rule. And if the Messiah, if Jesus ruled... They were his 12. They were the ones that were going to serve with him. They were going to be important. They were going to rule the world with him. But then Jesus drops this bombshell on them. It says in verse 31, it says that, that he began to teach them that the Son of Man 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of law, and must be killed and after that be raised again. And as these guys were processing what what Jesus had just said, they're like, now wait a minute. This is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to rule the world. And we with him. Where, where does this whole thing of him suffering and dying, where does that come in? And, and Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, this isn't the way it's going to be. It's not like this. The Messiah can't die. There's a better plan. It says that in verse 32 that, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, this is what they've been waiting for for centuries. And then Jesus responds to Peter. And remember, Jesus had just before this, he had in, as we look at the, 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 the Matthew account, he said, after Peter acknowledges that he is the Christ, he says, Peter, on this rock, on you, I will build my church. Commending Peter for his confession of Christ. And now he says, get behind me, Satan, from, from being commended to being rebuked and called Satan. I mean, how much lower does it get than that? I mean, Peter has to feel pretty, pretty, pretty beat down. See, here's the problem. See, Peter and the rest of the disciples and us, we're interested in the blessing that, that Jesus is able to bring. We're interested in forgiveness and, and what Jesus can provide and, and, and giving us stuff and giving us health and, 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 and all of these things. But Jesus says, it's not about you. He says, I'm going to die. And then he says in verse 34, after, after rebuking Peter, he says that he called the crowds together. All of those that had been following, he called everybody together and said, hey, let, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to gain, whoever wants to, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and my gospel will save it. So Jesus says, look, if you want to be my disciple, he's telling all these people that are gathered, and he's telling us, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to deny yourself. Well, what does that mean? To deny myself. Well, means that you are now, it's me being willing to say, Lord, you are now, you're the Lord of my life. Everything I do, everything I say, everything that I am 
is yours. So I am here for you. I am here to serve you. I am here for your desires, for your plans. I am here for your purposes. That's what I want for my life, whatever you want. I think oftentimes what the way we view it is, Lord, here's what I've got planned. Here's where I'm going. Would you join me and go along with me and bless what I'm doing? Jesus says, no, he says, this is about denying yourself and fulfilling my purposes for your life. He says, so you have to deny yourself, and then you have to pick up your cross. You have to take up your cross. And what, what was he asking them to do? He was saying, look, just how valuable is this salvation that I'm offering? Is it worth so much that you're willing to give your life for? Would you be willing to die for this salvation that I am offering you? Now, every day... People throughout the world, there are people that die because they believe their salvation is worth dying for. Most of us will never experience, will never be martyred for believing that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected for my eternal life. No, probably none of us will. But now, we will experience persecution. We will be mocked. We will lose relationships. Following Jesus will at times be hard. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross. That's what being a disciple is about. It's about doing those things. Deny yourself, picking up your cross. And then he, he says this, and follow me. Now where he says follow me, that means I need to imitate Christ. So as a disciple... I will deny myself. I will I say, Lord, what are your plans for my life? I will be willing to pick up my cross and suffer for whatever he wants me to do in his kingdom and for his glory, and I will become like him. First John says that, that, that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. I become like him. I want to be like Christ. And if I want to be like Christ, that means I have to be willing to go to the cross because that's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for you. It's what he did for, for the whole world. That is who Jesus is. So when I ask you the question, who do you say that Jesus is? How do you answer that? Because the way you answer that question is critical. Because understanding who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah who came and lived and died and rose again, will shape who you are. 
It will shape who you are. The way you answer that question. He is Lord. The question is, is He Lord of your life? Have you given Him control of your life? Have I given Him control of my life? And said, Lord, here I am. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Song we sing. And understanding who Jesus is shapes who we are. And as I was thinking about this, you know, there's a time in my life when I did not have an understanding of who Jesus was. I call them my invisible teen years. The reason I say invisible is because when I went to junior high, um, man, I hated it. Junior high was the worst time of my life. I mean, I was this, 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 this little kid, and I went from the, 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 the safe school of Fredericksburg to the big bad school of John Arlay and all these big hallways and and, and I didn't like who I was. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't popular. I, I kind of got picked on. I was short and chubby. And, and, and um, you know, for some reason, when I got to seventh grade, the acne came. And, and when I would look in the mirror in the morning, I didn't like, I didn't like the person that I saw. And I would have yelled, Lord, couldn't you make this better? You know, I wore homemade shirts that my mom made me, and that for sure wasn't cool in junior high. You know, and I would walk the halls, and I would be kind of scared because what if somebody picks on me? So that made me run from one class to the other um, so that I wouldn't get picked on, and I just didn't like who I was. And, and, And that caused a lot of years of some really, really bad decisions. See, I didn't really fit in in junior high, and so I had to try to work myself in when I got to high school. I didn't fit into my youth group. And so for several years, I made bad choices trying to figure out my identity. Who was this guy that I looked at in the mirror every morning and didn't like? When I was about 20 years old, I can't remember the exact moment, but but God began to do a work in me. Now, God had used Sunday school teachers. He used my wife my parents, the youth leaders here at Fairlawn to help, to help me navigate this course I was on. When I was 20 years old, I began to understand who Jesus was, not just with my head, but I began to understand who he was in my heart. I began to connect who Jesus was.
it wasn't just on an intellectual level, but it was on a heart level. Now, now I didn't just confess Jesus with my mouth, but I, I believed in my heart who Jesus was. And because I now began to understand who he was as Lord, that, that he was Lord, I began to understand why I existed. God began to shape my identity. I began to understand that in Christ, I am somebody. And I began to understand why God created me. And this, this, this person that felt unaccepted, insecure, and insignificant throughout my junior high and high school years, all of a sudden when I began to understand what Jesus had done for me, who he was... And that he loved me enough to die for me, I began to recognize that, that, that I am accepted. That, and, and I picked up a book by a guy named Neil Anderson. And Neil Anderson has this whole list of, of things about who you are in Christ. I began to understand that, that, that I, am, I am God's child. That, 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 that I am Christ's friend, that, that I'm united with him, that, that I have been bought with a price. I have been adopted as God's child. In Christ, I am complete. I am somebody through Christ. And all of a sudden, I began to understand and have identity and recognize that, that I am not insignificant. Actually, I am significant because of Christ. I am the salt and light of the earth. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am God's temple. I am significant. Not because of what Dwayne has done or be, oh, but, and who Dwayne is, but because of what Christ has done in me because he is Lord. Understanding who Jesus is is the most significant thing about you because it ultimately determines your identity. One of my favorite verses in the scriptures is Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says, you are God's workmanship. I love what the NLT does. It was this is, you are a masterpiece. In other words, there is no one like you. God only created one of you, and you are special, and you are important. He made you the way that he wanted you. See, when I looked in that mirror when I was 13 and 14 years old, I was already his masterpiece. He had created me just the way that he wanted me, but I didn't understand. 
I didn't understand that I had been created in his image. I didn't understand how much he loved me and that, that I've been accepted by him and I am significant in him and that he has created me in Christ Jesus to do good works which he's prepared in advance for me to do. I understood that I am his masterpiece. And boy, if I could have understood that when I was 12 years old, that in spite of my homemade shirts and my acne and, 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 and everything about me that I didn't like, that I could receive and accept the fact that I am his masterpiece. Life could have been a lot different, a lot less painful. And some of you, I would suspect feel like this, feel like you have no identity, that you don't ever measure up, and when you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. Can I encourage you that when you understand who Jesus is, you will understand your value and that you're not a mistake and there's nothing imperfect about you or nothing wrong about you. You are the way Jesus made you. And you are that way for a purpose. You are his masterpiece. And I suspect that many of you know people Maybe you've already in your mind or in your heart and your mind as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. You understand that you are his masterpiece, that you are his son or daughter and you've been created. There is somebody around you that doesn't understand that. And as believers, it is our responsibility to with spiritual eyes look for people who don't have an identity, who, who, who need somebody to walk alongside them and say, let me, let me, let me share with you, let, let me be your friend. Let me show you Jesus. But it begins by me recognizing Christ's identity as Lord and Savior, as the anointed one. And when I recognize that, that he, when I recognize him as creator and Lord, I recognize that he has created me uniquely, and my identity is in him. Then my life will be lived for his glory. But boy, this is, this, is, this is the most important question that you will ever answer. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Creator. In Him. I am complete. I am his 
masterpiece. That's who you are. That's who you are. Let's pray. Father, your word says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. Lord, right now there are there are people here that 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 he is working hard to to destroy their identity, who they are in Christ, telling them lies about their identity. Father, you it says Jesus has come that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. And so, Lord, I pray over this, over all of us, that, that we would understand through your Holy Spirit who Jesus is and as Lord and Savior of our lives we would understand that our identities as his masterpieces come from him. That we are no mistake. Father, would you help us? Would you empower us to to receive and to claim this promise from you that we are your masterpieces? In Christ's name I pray, amen. And I'd encourage you, if you feel, because um, it's a really bad place to be when you feel like um, you're, you just don't matter, talk to somebody. And, and get into the word of God and help. Read Psalm 139 in other places, just to understand that you are special and you are created in Christ Jesus and he has something special for you to do. Have a good week.